Turning today to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 14 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after charity, giving love, and desire spiritual gifts, but rather, especially, that ye may prophesy. And our subject is God's rules for tongues and for worship. We come to this chapter, and I believe the best thing I can do is to pass through it in a verse-by-verse manner, and I shall divide it into three or four headings as we study it this morning. We've come to this point in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, this great 14th chapter, so frequently misunderstood and uh, interpreted in a most bizarre way today, often, and we should go through it carefully and look at the sense of each verse. We've studied the great 12th chapter, which is about the body and the ministry of uh, the Word of God is for the benefits of the entire body. And that theme continues through chapter 13, really, to chapter 14. The gifts that will be described in this chapter are for the benefit of the whole body of Christ. The whole congregation, the whole church, and the church at large. We're going to be reading about uh, gifts that in some cases have passed and we shall comment on that. And they were intended to communicate truth, God's truth. The word of God was not yet complete when the apostle wrote this epistle. The New Testament was still in formation. And while the New Testament was uh, incomplete, there were prophets functioning. We read in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that prophets are, with apostles, part of the foundation stage of the church. The New Testament teaching is based upon the foundation of the apostles and New Testament prophets. There were still inspired messages being given because the word wasn't complete. With the completion of the word of God, we have everything. We have the whole body of inspired knowledge. Oh, God, by his Spirit, still inspires Christians today, but in a much lesser way. It may well be that from day to day, you are reminded by the inner working of the Spirit of God of certain vital spiritual duties, and things may be laid upon your heart and to curse to you and your move to do something for someone or to speak to someone. Oh, yes, in that form, the Spirit of God is still at work within individual Christian believers, prompting them to good, prompting them with Scripture that they know, helping and guiding in answer to prayer, but not in terms of revealing extra truth things additional to those found in the Word of God, special doctrines 
revelation of new things. That has all been completed. Now the word of God is complete. Nothing may be added to it. Nothing may be removed from it. But we are reading of a time when there were still prophets functioning in the church at Corinth. Follow after giving love. Our King James translators choose the word charity because it isn't just love. This is outflowing love, active love, giving love. Follow after this form of giving love and desire, be zealous for, is the original spiritual gifts. The two things go together. We've already learned in chapter 12 that the purpose of the gifts is the edification, the instruction, the upbuilding of the whole body of Christ. Never for individual benefit. Not like today. People say they speak in tongues and they do it privately. And they say, oh, it lifts me up. Oh, it edifies me. I'm not sure how because they don't understand what the language means. But they think it's of benefit to them and they get some kind of emotional experience from it. Yes, but in chapter 12 to 14, it's very evident that the purpose of the gifts was to impart meaningful knowledge to the whole body, not to give some mysterious emotional gift to the individual only. You see how today uh, there are many earnest believers too who've departed a long way from the word of God in these things. And they don't read this chapter and understand it. And they don't let it query what they're doing. But we must follow after love. Giving love is the test, even in those days, of every gift. It is today. There, there are two families of gifts. We've discussed this. There were the revelatory gifts where God was revealing truth because the word of God was not yet complete so the tongue speaker and the prophets both had a similar ministry at the end of the day they were imparting inspired words truth to the people there were revelatory gifts and along with the revelatory gifts go sign gifts they were to authenticate God's messengers such as the apostles who had the sign gifts of healing and so on, which authenticated them as God's special appointees and spokesmen. But those gifts, the sign gifts and the revelatory gifts, have passed. And we know they've passed. The word of God is now complete. You turn to, even a simple test, you turn to First uh, and Second Timothy, the pastorals, where the Apostle Paul instructs how the ongoing church is to proceed after the foundation stage and how they are to appoint officers and elders and deacons, preachers, proclaimers of the word, what the standards are, what the qualifications are. Not a word about appointing a prophet. Not a word about recognizing a tongue speaker because they did not form part of the structure of the ongoing church. So there are no instructions about their future at all. And here it is. Follow after giving love. It's one of the tests 
every gift, even the gifts that haven't passed, such as uh, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and numerous others, they're not for individual benefit, they're for the whole church to impart truth and comfort and succor to the people of God. The rule of love, giving love, applies to every gift. Follow after charity and be zealous for spiritual gifts. Not individually, personally zealous. Every one of you has got to desire to be an apostle, say in Paul's day, or a tongue speaker, or a prophet. No, the apostle in chapter 12 has gone out of his way to say, not everyone is an apostle, not everyone is a prophet. There's only a select small number. We turn to the book of Acts, for example, and we see how the church at Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas, and it tells us exactly how many prophets and teachers, inspired ones, uninspired ones, there was in that large church, very, very few. And they reduced their numbers from five to three by sending two of them out on a missionary journey. The data in the New Testament is not as it is sometimes presented. Don't you know we're told in New Testament times everybody was a prophet, everybody spoke in tongues, everybody healed? But you look at the pages of Scripture, it isn't true. It's very limited, the spreading of these gifts. And that I'm going to emphasize as we go on much more swiftly than my introduction, I hope. Well, that's the first verse. Rather, especially, the key gift is that of prophecy. And the apostle's going to say why. Verse 2. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, what's that? Well, we know what a tongue was, a language, because it's described for us in Acts chapter 2 by Luke on the day of Pentecost. It was the miraculous, God-given ability to speak fluently in a language you had never learned. Now, the typical unit of society in those days was the village. And you grew up in a village. And maybe you went, there were small towns. Jerusalem in those days was a small town where everyone knew each other. And you grew up, you went to school. Well, you knew your fellows, your peers, and you knew that these people had never learned those languages. We didn't learn these languages. And look, this man is fluent in this language. And people who come from that country can understand him clearly. The tongues of the New Testament were literal languages, miraculously given and attested because people who spoke those languages recognized them. And here in Corinth, if somebody was given a miraculous language, what a wonderful thing, what a staggering and amazing thing. It could be that people would say, I wonder if that language is real. I wonder if he's making sense. And lo and behold, another person would be gifted 
to speak the same language and would attest that it was true and the meaning he assigned to it was absolutely correct. Well, you'd stand back and say, God is with us. That is a miracle. That was the attention of tongues originally. That's not what anybody practices today. What is practiced today, mistakenly, and often by very earnest Christians, I'm not taking away for a moment the conversion and the Christian walk of many people who are Pentecostalists and Charismatics. Not for a moment. There are some very earnest people. There are also a lot of phonies, as we know. However, earnest people, what they're doing is a mistake. Their teachers have foisted it on them. Their teachers have said, if you've really received the Holy Spirit, if you really love God, if you really want to follow him, you will speak in tongues. Look, this is how you do it. And they give them some encouragement and some start-offs, and soon people are doing it. But it's not a language. It doesn't have a meaning. Nobody knows what is being said. The person who's speaking in the tongue doesn't understand it himself or herself. It is nothing whatever like what happened in the New Testament, which is an unmistakable miracle. Now, some, to justify this, people say, oh, but what you're reading about in Corinthians is different. It's an ecstatic language. Some go as far to say it's an angelic language. But, dear friends, Look at it even humanly. The author of, Luke, of, of Acts was Luke. The author of 1 Corinthians is Paul. They were fellow travelers. They were the closest of colleagues and friends. You read through the book of Acts, they were together much of the time. For much of Paul's journeys and missionary journeys, Luke, who records them, will say, we, 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 he was with him. When the we disappears, he's stationed somewhere else. But for much of the time, they're together. Is it conceivable? They meant totally different things by the word for languages? Of course not. When Luke describes literal languages, so does Paul. Paul hasn't turned the word on its head. And he is not describing something utterly different. This is literal languages. It was a wonderful miracle. We're going to see, if we make it, we're going to see a little later on that the chief purpose of this ability to speak miraculously in another language was actually a sign for Jews. Presumably, if there were no Jews present, the gift wasn't given. It was a sign for Jews. Jews, well, they had it drilled into them. Moses is everything. Moses is everything. And the law which he gave and the ceremonial law and the method of worship is unchangeable. They were wrong in that. And God in his kindness, when the New Testament church was brought about, gave them a significant sign. It was predicted by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 28 that the time would come, the time of Messiah, when they would be addressed by people in other languages. And it happened. 
and it happened in a miraculous way. And it would, was in, designed to move and strike Jewish doubters that these people really do have the Spirit of God. This is authentic. And sometimes it succeeded, and sometimes not. But anyway, he that speaketh in a foreign language speaketh not unto men, but unto God. Now, it's fairly evident that if a person received a gift of a foreign language, the gift stayed largely with them. It didn't come and go. I'm capable of speaking this language on Monday and not on Wednesday. And so the person who possessed the gift could be mistaken about whether he was receiving a fresh message from God to pass on to the people. That was the objective. By receiving the tongue, he would understand it and he would speak it forth. But as he got the language, he may in his excitement think, well, I've got a message today, but he might not have. So he needed to be authenticated by another person being given the same gift, who would be an interpreter. And the two witnesses both had the message. It was authentic. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue without interpretation, well, it's he speaks only to God. And the point of this is that there is no point. That is meaningless. God has given him that message. If he just speaks it back to God, what is the point of that? There is no point. If he's not able to clearly announce it, and if there isn't corroboration from another gifted tongue speaker, he's to be quiet that day. That's what the passage will go on to tell us. But it's pointless to speak in the real language if there's no message for the people. Today, they speak in ecstatic languages which have no meaning and there's no message. It's wrong from every point of view. Verse 3, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. It's wonderful, this verse. The prophet and the tongue speaker is really a prophet. If he interprets, then he becomes like a prophet. But look at verse 3. The inspired prophet speaks edification. He teaches doctrine. Exhortation. He applies the doctrine with words of comfort or words of reproof encouragement, reproof, and comfort or consolation. He communicates something of the glory of God. They're the three great aspects of ministry beside evangelism. We always divide ministry into four parts. Evangelism, the teaching of doctrine, the application, and the revealing of the glories of Christ and of God to uplift the people. And you've got three of them there in a single verse, almost by the way. Verse 4, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue, a foreign language, 
edifies himself. He understands the meaning. He builds himself up. He understands his language. But he that prophesieth edifies the church. The tongue speaker should have spoken his message out to the people to make it worthwhile. Verse 5, I would that you all speak with tongues. That's the apostle using language. I'd like that to happen, but it wasn't the will of God, as he goes on to say. But rather that you prophesied. That's the great thing, to be edifying the people, building them up with understandable truth. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interprets that the church may receive edifying. That's the purpose. A sign to Jews and also for the edifying of the church with special inspired messages until the scripture is complete. Verse 6, Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues... What shall I profit you? He tries another way, the apostle, of reasoning this through. through. What shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation, here are the categories again, by knowledge, or by prophesying, or by doctrine, aspects of, of the kind of revelation that came through tongues or prophecy. And verse 7, an illustration. And even things without life. He's going to talk about lifeless instruments that give sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sound unless they're capable of being made to produce individual notes. How shall anybody understand the tune? Or make it out? It'll just be a noise. There won't be a melody. Understanding is everything, says the apostle. Tongues without understanding are not valid. Not even in the days when the tongues were real, miraculous languages. They had to convey a message. And then another illustration, verse 8. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? They didn't have radio sets and so on. In those days, when the battle, the, the uh, uh, troops were arrayed, ready for battle, the only way to communicate with masses of men arranged in long lines or around hills and so on was to communicate by bugle or trumpet. And even to this day, the military use a set sequence, largely ceremonial now, of bugle calls. And if you're in the military, you know the calls. You know what each little call means. But if the trumpet is incapable of sounding clear notes that constitute a message in five or six notes, who shall prepare himself to the battle? The troops will never charge. They'll never move forward. The trumpet can't give a distinctive call. That's the illustration. So tongues, even when they're real languages, are useless if there's no message. So likewise ye, verse 9, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, you interpret and speak out your tongue, 
and someone else corroborates that your message is exactly right, how shall it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the air. It is totally without meaning or point or purpose. If only friends would read these passages, then they'd get it right and obey the Lord. Even dear Christians have been taught to miss the point. Verse 10, there are, it may be, so many kinds of voices, read languages in the world, and none of them is without signification. Every language has a meaning, except one. What is the one language in the world that has no meaning? The staggering exception. I'll tell you. Pentecostal tongues. They didn't exist in Paul's day. And so he's able to say, under inspiration, every language has a meaning. But now, except charismatic Pentecostal tongues, the language has no meaning. Staggering. However did we manage that as Christians? Verse 11. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, of the, of the language, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian or a foreigner, and he that speaketh shall be a foreigner unto me. The apostle is going down so many different routes to convince Christendom that tongues without a message are completely baseless and pointless. They're the product of emotion and excitement. And it's not surprising, is it, that there are many non-Christian cults who can speak fluently in ecstatic tongues without a meaning. It's not confined to Christians because it has nothing spiritual about it. I'm not suggesting it's from the devil, but it's from instruction and excitement and a variety of things. It's not difficult to do. Verse 12, even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, that's good, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. That's the great principle. Verse 13, wherefore let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue a language pray that he may interpret. We're back to the man who's got the gift but he hasn't got a message from God. He finds himself able to articulate in the language. Well, pray that you have a clear understanding and there's a message from God. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. He's fervent. His tongue is going. It's a real language. But he is fervent and in a posture of prayer, calling upon God, but the whole exercise is without meaning. That's sad. His gift has run away with him. There's no inspiration from God today. Verse 13, what is it then? I, here's a principle. I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. There always must be understanding. 
Worship is words, thought, sung, said. It's an intelligent activity. Worship is words. I've been in a service in another place years ago where the announcement was made that we are going to worship in music. And somebody got up and played a solo on a trumpet. Not possible. No words. Worship without words, that's a nonsense. I will pray with the spirit, I will pray with the understanding also. The understanding is vital. It's the palace of faith. It's within the understanding that your communication with God and your prayer and your worship is launched. I will sing with the spirit, I will sing with the understanding also. These these things are paramount, and Paul announces them as basic principles. Verse 16, else when thou shalt bless with the spirit, he's repeating himself, but he's trying every method possible to get this across to us. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupied the seat of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? You're thanking well, the style is great, but there's no edifying, there's no communication of sense. Verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. But in the light of what the apostle has been saying, it's clear he always had a message when he did so. Verse 19, yet in the church, I had rather speak, look at this statistic, five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in a foreign language. 10,000 words. Better to have five in the language of the people. And then the great words of verse 20, brethren, be not children in understanding. Oh, children love color and movement and spectacle. Corinthians, you're erring in that direction. You love to hear the speaking in languages, the phenomenal things. The adults, adults are all about sense and message. That's the purpose. And then verse 21, the the, the chief purpose of tongues, but not the only purpose. In the law, this is Isaiah 28 quoted, it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, the Jews. And yet for all that, will they not hear me, saith the Lord. And in the earliest days of the church, Jews were appealed to by the miracle of foreign language speaking, which proved to them that the Spirit of God was with the new church. So it was preeminently something for Jews. Verse 22, wherefore tongues are for a sign, for the sign ministers are past, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not, doubting Jews, clinging to Moses' apron strings, as it were. 
but prophesying serveth not for them that, that believe not, but for them which believe. And then there's this picture of the church gathering. Look at verse 23. If the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, that never happened. This is an illustration. If everyone in the church spoke in a language, what a miracle. It wouldn't do much good if it wasn't interpreted. And unbelievers came in, they'd say, this is a madhouse. Even though it's a genuine miracle. Because they wouldn't understand a word of it. So there's no point, says the apostle. But if all were to prophesy, and the tongue speaker becomes a prophet when he speaks out his message, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. The secrets of his heart are opened and made manifest. There's a wonderful word for us here. The age of sign miracles has passed. But we covet this. The preaching of the word has mighty power to show people themselves and by the work of the Spirit to bring them under conviction. You have a little picture of it right there. We're now down to verse 26 and uh, must move to conclusion. But I'm going to give a second heading here and call it the platform party, the leaders of the church. You cannot understand 1 Corinthians 14 unless you ask, who is the apostle addressing? Well, of course, he's addressing all of us. Yes, but who is he particularly speaking to in this chapter? And the answer is, he is speaking to the leaders of the church. He, he means all the church to be instructed, but he's giving instructions to the leaders of the church. And if he is not doing this from verse 1, he certainly is doing it from verse 26. If you miss this, you will misunderstand some of the great parts of the chapter. From verse 26, it is quite plain. He is addressing the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the prophets, the tongue speakers, and he even indicates in the passage that they are what you might call the platform party of the church at Corinth. I don't know how many there were in total. Five, like Antioch, six, seven, eight, Perhaps at most. But here's how we know. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, a doctrine, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation? Really? Well, if he literally means everyone in the church... It's commonly thought there were 1,000 to 1,500 people in the church at Corinth. If 1,000 people in the church at Corinth all brought a contribution like this, and let us say their contribution was each two minutes long, 
How would you ever limit people to two minutes? The service with a congregation of a modest thousand would have taken 35 hours. He's not speaking to the whole church. He is, in a sense. He's speaking to the leaders of the church. Every one of you brings something. A hymn, a doctrine, an explanation. And, of course, many of them are going to take much more than two minutes. I'm going to take 40 minutes. If there's only 500 members of the church, or 200, you still haven't got enough hours in a day. He's speaking to the leaders of the church. There's another clear indication of this as we go on in verse 30. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, this is the platform party, friends. These are the leaders of the church who are being addressed from verse 26. Here are the instructions very quickly. End of verse 26. Let all things be done unto edifying. No individual gifts just for yourself. Verse 27. Tongue speakers, two. That would be the norm for a service. Two tongue speakers. At the very most, three. And that one after the other. And let one interpret. There must be somebody there who can interpret all the two or three. That's a massive restriction. Verse 28, but if there be no interpreter... Let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. He thinks he's got a message, but not today. So remain silent. There's no interpreter that agrees. Same rule for the prophets, verse 29. Two would be the norm, three at most, but the other prophets, maybe there were three, four, Five must agree. God must speak to them. This is correct. This is right. If one of them says, hold on, brother, he takes his seat and remains silent. Verse 30. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. They're working together. If somebody says some. Um, Oh, but uh, I'm carried away by the Spirit of God. I can't stop. People get excited, you know. You're, you're, you're working against the Spirit to shut me up. I'm carried along by the Spirit. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. When God inspires a tongue speaker or prophet, he leaves him with his self-control intact, to draw to a hold, to a halt, hold his peace, take his seat if there is no agreement among the body of leaders. It was very beautiful the way it was conducted. And for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Well, I'm sorry, I haven't got to the instructions for worship 
two vital verses here. We've run out of time, but what is profitable for us is to know this. All the power of the Spirit is with God's people today without prophets, without tongue speakers. The word is complete and the power of the Spirit is manifest whenever the word of God is sincerely explained and opened up, preached and applied to the hearts of men and women. This is, we're looking at the early church, but the rules of worship which follow, which we haven't got to today, are vital and helpful for us. Well, this is sufficient for us this morning as we've looked through this chapter. Let's close our thinking, singing together the hymn 467. Hymn 467. O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart.